Welcome to Mariella Meets. I'm Mariella Frostrup, and each week I'll be bringing you a selection of the best interviews from our favorite guests. Movers and shakers from the worlds of art and entertainment, politics, business, music, and wider society. Stella Remington was the first woman to take on the role of Director General, MI5, Britain's Domestic Security Service. When she retired from the post after nearly 40 years at MI5, Stella said she'd set herself a new mission to rescue spy stories from the blokes. Well, she certainly did that. Since then, she's written over 11 books and she's back with a tense new thriller, The Devil's Bargain, and she joins me now. Stella, welcome to the programme. Before we talk about your wonderful new book, which kept me up way later than I meant to stay up last night um, reading, um, I wanted to ask you, of course, about the, the Russian invasion in Ukraine. You took up the, the post of Director General at MI5 right at the end of the, the Cold War. And I just wondered, having had long experience of dealing with Russia, how shocked you were or not by the recent invasion? I don't think I was really shocked, actually. Um, it, I think there was plenty of warning that it was coming, even though there were plenty of denials also that it was coming. But uh, nothing surprises me as far as Russia goes, led as it is by a former KGB officer. So no, I wasn't surprised. I was horrified. And it must say particularly because it took me back to my own childhood, which uh, happened during the Second World War. And I spent a considerable amount of time myself in air raid shelters. And the sight of all these poor people sheltering from this bombing has just brought all that back to me in a rather sad and, and made me rather gloomy, I must say. So yes, it's absolutely horrifying, but I don't think I was particularly surprised. Do you have a sense that, you know, and we, we've talked for a long time about the fact that, you know, we, we're, we're a generation who haven't lived through a war, we don't understand what war was like. Do you think that we, we'd become complacent about the danger posed by a regime like the Russian one? I think we possibly had. Um, I think there have been many other things that particularly, I mean, looking at it, it from the point of view of our intelligence services, which is the point of view I always look from, of course, even though I've been retired for a long time now. I think we had got a lot of other things distracting our attention with the growth of terrorism in particular. So I think possibly we had taken our eye off what was going on in, in Russia. Um, we tried at the beginning of the Cold War, at the end of the Cold War, I mean, I can remember I led a small delegation to make our first contact with the KGB in the, those sort of glorious days when we thought that the Cold War was over and we were all going to be able to be friends. But it was quite apparent to me as we uh, went into the Lubyanka, which is the, still the headquarters of one branch of what succeeded the KGB, that things were not quite as friendly as they seemed to be when we paid visits to our former our former enemies uh, in the countries of uh, Eastern Europe. There we had a mm. sense that everybody was changing and that they wanted to be friends. But I certainly didn't get that sense in Moscow in 1991 when I went there. Now, tell me a bit more about that surreal experience, because you've said that, that not much had changed when you went there, that it was clear that the KGB wanted to hang on to their own positions of power. And actually, I mean, with the benefit of hindsight, you, you clearly had enormous foresight. The, it was a very, very strange visit, actually. It came about just at the moment when Yeltsin had taken over. And um, apparently he had met Douglas Hurd, who was our foreign secretary at the time and had said to him, I want to modernize 
and possibly democratize the KGB? Will you send some people to talk to them about how intelligence services work in democracies? And so in our innocence, we went along, three of us, myself sort of leading a small delegation, and we met a long uh, line of KGB officers. We talked to them about laws and regulations and the sort of thing that intelligence services have in democracies. And they gazed at us blankly, I think, uh, wondering what on earth we thought we were talking about. <laughs> there was one person there who was in charge, briefly in charge. Yeltsin had put in charge of the KGB's modernization, a professor, uh, Professor Bakartin, I remember him, and he was a, quite a small man, and he was sitting in the middle of this long line of fierce-looking KGB officers. And after we'd done our little bit and talked about all the rules and regulations, he said to me, I won't be here very long. And that was true, he wasn't. The KGB had him out, and he went back to his university, and very little changed. And that's how it's gone on. And now, of course, uh, former officers of the KGB are running uh, Russia. You've described uh, that encounter very evocatively, I think. You said it was more like wild animals looking at prey they could no longer eat, which sort of sends shivers down one's spine. And and you have said before that you came from an era where there were clear-cut enemies. Um, Do you think that that the West has been turning, well, not the West, the UK, the West, yes, both together, uh, have been turning too much of a blind eye to to Russian aggression and influence? I mean, if you look at the the, the poisonings of the Skripals in in Salisbury, uh, you know, this sort of octopus-like hold on on London's financial institutions, they would all seem to be things that that you couldn't even have imagined Mm. happening 50 years ago. No, I think that's true. And, you know, I go back to my former point, I think... Many many of our efforts were distracted, actually, and we didn't, I don't think. I mean, I'm on the outside now looking in. I don't think we did take sufficient notice of the the various things that were happening. I mean, there was uh, various, as, as you say, poisonings and killings and strange deaths of Russians who were living in the country. And I'm, I don't know how much investigation was done of these things, but looking at it now from the outside, one just has a feeling that possibly not enough attention was being paid to what was going on. And we were all looking at something else, looking in another direction. I don't know, maybe that's unfair, but that's the feeling one has as an outsider. I agree with you. But I imagine uh, running MI5 had something like that happened on your watch. You probably would have sat up and taken quite a lot of notice (laughs) of it. I think we would, because we were focused in those days. uh, Certainly when when I first joined, I worked for quite a long time in our counter-espionage branch and eventually became director of counter-espionage. So I was quite well steeped in the Cold War. And uh, certainly by the time I became director general, of course, you know, we were turning our attention elsewhere when the Cold War came to an end. As I said, we we did think that perhaps, you know, we were in a new era and we were facing uh, increased threats from the IRA and terrorism coming from foreign sources. And I sensed that that was probably where we turned our attention. And uh, I don't know, I hope I'm not being unfair to my former colleagues, but I just sense that obviously no uh, no government-run organisation has got infinite resources and one has to devote one's resources to what seems to be the major threat at the time. And I sense that that was terrorism and things have uh, probably not been as thoroughly investigated as they might have been in the days when we knew uh, that we were in a Cold War and that our main threat came from the KGB and its allies in the countries of Eastern Europe. 
And understanding the KGB mentality, as you must do, having scrutinized them uh, for so long, what do you think is in Putin's mind at the moment? It's the million-dollar question, obviously. <laughs> um, and if you can answer it perfectly and get it right, then I think there'll be huge reward. But, but, but you know, just psychologically speaking, uh, you know, this is a man who wanted to join the KGB for, from when he was a schoolboy. Mm. You know, so he's really, really steeped in 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 the tradition of the Cold War. I, I, I imagine. What, so, is he? Is he angry? Is he upset that he feels his empire, you know, delusional, however that might be, is is lost? What do you think is the psychology here? Well, I think he's actually said that he wants to recreate the borders of the former Soviet Union. I think that's the first thing. Uh, I don't think he can do it, and he probably knows he can't, but at least uh, that's something in his mind. I think he also genuinely feared that NATO was getting too close and that it was aggressive. But I think, on the other hand, he was probably receiving duff information. I have a feeling that um, his intelligence people were probably telling him wrongly that he would receive, his forces would receive something of a welcome in Ukraine. And of course, that, that was totally wrong. I think he's probably surprised at the level of uh, defence uh, um, uh, that's going on and uh, the incompetence, apparently, of his forces to make uh, the headway that he hoped they would. So I guess he's angry. That that would be uh, my feeling. He must be really, really angry that the whole thing has gone into such a mess, basically. He'll be angry, uh, no doubt whatsoever. He'll be angry about the sanctions. And I guess he must be feeling that the world is pressing in on him. I mean, if you know, one can only imagine what he feels like sitting in his great rooms in the Kremlin um, with us. He's probably only got a limited number of advisors that he's actually listening to nowadays. And I would then sense that he, he may, I don't know, if it was me, I'd be feeling very much, you know, that uh, the end was nigh. But I doubt whether he's feeling that. And a cornered, angry dictator with nuclear power. What should we fear from that? I think we should fear, basically. Because it is a threat. Uh, I've no, obviously, one has no idea what he would do. Um, you know, we, everybody's speculating he's ill, he's going mad, da da da. None of us know, I don't think. So I just think it's a very, very uh, scary, scary time. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Your new book, The Devil's Bargain, is, um, let's face it, extremely timely, filled with bribes, Russian influence and investigations. Um, tell me about where the idea stemmed from. Um, it stemmed from my imagination, actually. 
and also um, a sense that um, things might be going on um, in, a, in a more traditional way than possibly we think, because the story is about a, an illegal, uh, uh, that is uh, a spy, who is inserted into a foreign country with, for the purposes of espionage, but is documented, entirely documented as somebody else. So uh, we have, it begins really with the KGB at the end of the Cold War, finding it very difficult to get really good intelligence out of the West, because obviously the kind of people like the Cambridge spies uh, who would spy for, for the Soviet Union out of ideology no longer exist. So um, the general in the KGB in charge of getting intelligence out of the West is wondering what to do. And he decides that he will insert an illegal into Britain with the intention of trying to get uh, somewhere very significant in society where he can pass really top quality intelligence back to the Kremlin. And so that's what happens. And this person arrives, gets himself settled in and slowly pursues his, his task of getting into some significant place in society. But meanwhile, the Cold War comes to an end and all the people who sent him there disappear because the KGB now changes and there are new people there and they've lost sight of him. And so here is his dilemma. He is now getting on very well uh, according to his appointed task, but he has no support. The people who sent him there are no longer. So what does he do? Does he give up and go home or does he struggle on? And he decides to do the latter. And this is the story of how he struggles on. And there is one person in the country who has some kind of suspicion well-based about him. And uh, so we go on. I won't tell you the story, um, but um, that's, well, that's, I, the, that's the premise anyway on which it's based. I know quite a lot of the story, having immersed myself in it over the last couple of days. And one of the other things that really struck me in terms of the timeliness of this book is how you look at the ease with which someone can integrate. You know, there's been a, a bit of controversy recently about the the the, the peerage that, that Boris Johnson gave Evgeny Lebedev. Um, mm -hmm. And it's just interesting to to note in this book how how you know Igor becomes politician Peter Robinson seamlessly incorporated into British society and and into the heart of of British governance. Um, were you surprised about Lord Lebedev with the, the, despite the advice from security services? Well, I don't really know anything about the case and who advised who about what, but uh, you can put me down as being quite surprised that uh, the son of a KGB officer now sits in the House of Lords. And I think that's all I can say about that case, really. But obviously with this story, it's a scenario that you find uh, plausible. And that's, that, that, that's why you've elaborated on it here. I love the fact, um, I don't, you know, you always think about spies who've defected, you know, to the West or, or, or vice yeah. versa. But, but in this case, we have a spy who, who hasn't d defected, but has basically been ghosted by handlers who were no longer employed. Because as you say, it, 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 it sort of happens around the time of the end of, of the Cold War, the yes. fall of the wall. He, he's got yeah. no one to contact anymore, no, no one to tell him what to do. Exactly. That's his dilemma. So he is actually self-propelled, uh, working to a brief that he was given years and years ago. And he's done brilliantly. I mean, he manages to get himself into uh, a very significant place in society, all off his own bat, because he's lost touch with, his, with the people who should be controlling him. Uh, he's made his own money, and he has actually really done very well. I have to say that he's lived in this country before, because his father 
uh, was uh, the Soviet ambassador to London. So that's why he speaks perfect English and he was here as a, as a child. So he does extremely, extremely well and uh, does get himself into this very significant place in society. But, of course, who has he got to give his wonderful information to? He doesn't know the people who are there any longer. They don't know he's here until fairly well on in the story. And so this is the dilemma. It's the sort of uh, the challenge of the, of the wonderful spy who's cut off from his roots and seems uh, to belong to a previous generation. Do you think there were spies abandoned like that? Just sort of, as I say, ghosted is the new term. Yeah, I think they probably were, actually. I think um, a lot of them probably went back at the end of the Cold War, thinking, you know, that things had changed and they were no longer useful. I can imagine, well, did imagine for this book, uh, that some might have stayed and what would have happened. I mean, maybe in, in real life, maybe the KGB had kept in touch uh, or their successors had kept in touch with the people that they had fed out into the West. But in, in the case of this book, they hadn't, um, because it was such a secret operation that the general who sent him in the first place, when he left the KGB, he, he retired at the time that the Cold War came to an end and went off to live in America. So as he left, he was so determined that this wonderful operation that he'd started with this brilliant young man was going to succeed, that he made very sure that none of the papers that related to this operation were available to anybody else. And he sealed them up and hid them, but they came to light. And so the whole thing gradually unravels. Um, How difficult a balancing act is it for you? Uh, Because, you know, you've spent a lot of this interview very kindly um, talking to me about about the situation with Russia and and your experience of the KGB and so on. How how difficult is it for you to, to balance the life of an author supposedly imagining things that often seem all too plausible in real life, uh, you know, along with the fact that, that, that your previous profession was, you know, as head of MI5. It's, it's quite easy now, actually, because I've been out of it long enough. And my experience, of course, is now old and the world has rolled on enormously, even since the time I retired from MI5 in 1996. And everything really has changed since then. I mean, the whole world of digitalization has come in since I left. So the way they work, the things they do, the tools they have at their disposal are really completely different from when I was working there. So I don't find it difficult. Um, the, the stories, of course, do come out of my experience and, and my coupled with my imagination and, and, you know, my sort of vague feeling about what might be going on at the moment. But the, the rest of it, I think I'm far enough away obviously not to sort of write anything that's going to um, place a risk on our national security um, because I don't know anything about in detail about what's going on now. So now I don't know. I don't find it difficult really to become, uh, an, you know, a, a writer of imaginative stories when I have actually been a doer of the real thing. Uh, it's strange. I, I think it's something about... Um, a secret, you know, life in a secret organisation. I think it's something about that um, that enables me to use my imagination and create something that's entirely fictional um, while having had the experience that I have had. 
I guess there must be something as well. I mean, you were the first uh, uh, director general to go public, not by choice, but after your cover was blown, not by the KGB, but but John Major's <laughs> government. So in a way, you know, I mean, is this too obvious an assumption to make? You know, there had been quite a bit of fiction around your life throughout your working career, your professional career working for the government. Hmm. Well, that's true, of course, because if uh, you work in a secret organisation, then you effectively, I suppose, you live a secret life. You don't talk about what you do. You don't tell people where you work. So you do live a cover, in a sense. And that was why, when I became Director General, and I was told, uh, and it, it literally was like this, I was told one day, you're going to be the next Director General. And by the way, we've decided to announce your appointment and your name. And that came as a, a huge shock to me because in a sense, the people, you know, the government, um, the Home Office at the time, seemed to think it would all be really quite smooth and nothing much would happen. And I said to them at the time, well, uh, what's, the, what's the press plan for this? You know, how are you going to manage this? And I was more or less told, oh, no, no, you know, no minister's going to go on the telly and, and say why we've decided to announce your appointment. It'll be all right. You'll just say how delighted you are to have got this um, important appointment. And then that'll be that. And I thought, no, no, that won't be that. And it wasn't, of course, because it became a huge tabloid story. And, um, you know, with headlines like housewife, super spy, a mother of two gets tough with terrorism. And some one newspaper published a photograph of our house on the front page just at the time when the IRA was stalking targets in London. So we had to move. And myself, particularly with my younger daughter, who was still at home, and we became we had to kind of live underground, effectively a secret life, you know, disguising where we lived, and she wasn't allowed to give her telephone number to her friends and all this kind of thing. So that was a, a very kind of uh, odd end to my, as you might describe it, as secret life. And maybe that's all that the kind of. Um, you know, the, the difference, the change, the suddenness and all that. Maybe that's contributed to my to my interest in, in writing novels. Indeed. But also, I mean, you talked about President Putin being furious. You must have been furious. <laughs> I mean, that, 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 that you must have felt like you'd been completely thrown to the wolves. And how difficult was that within your own family life to explain away things that, that, that you'd had to keep secret? I mean, I just can't even imagine that. It was difficult at the time, but you see, I, I wasn't cross about it because I actually did believe that it was very important for our intelligence services to be more open at that particular time. I mean, it was the end of the Cold War um, and it just seemed to me, you know, people were saying things like, oh, we don't need spies anymore. You know, that's all about the Cold War. And we knew we were needed even more because of the increased threat from terrorism. So I did think that it was time, it was, it was important that we were more open about the things we could be open about. And in fact, I gave um, the Dimbleby lecture on BBC television talking about, is there a conflict between security and, um, and our, and our um, uh, democracy, basically? You know, how does security and democracy fit together, which I thought was a very important subject. So, no, I wasn't cross about it, but I was pretty cross that it was seemingly, you know, so so immediately thrust upon me that we hadn't had time to make any arrangements for our own security, for example. I hadn't had time to tell my daughters what was going on. Um, you know, it just came as a shock to everybody. The neighbours 
were, you know, suddenly realized that this quiet lady who'd lived in their road for X number of years turned out to be somebody who might bring danger to the street and, uh, you know, started writing to the newspapers saying, um, one, one person wrote that my, it was my helicopters ceaselessly circling overhead were keeping her family awake. And in fact, the helicopters were nothing to do with me. They were the police monitoring the Arsenal football ground. So Helfen <laughs> became absolutely ludicrous for a time. And uh, so that was, I think I was cross about that. It hadn't been better managed. But I wasn't cross about the fact that it did give us an opportunity to do what I thought was appropriate, namely to be a bit more open about what intelligence services do and what they don't do particularly. Thanks for listening to Mariella Meets with me, Mariella Frostrup. There'll be more from the podcast next week, so make sure to download the free Times Radio app to never miss an episode. And don't forget, you can catch the live edition of my programme every Monday to Thursday, 1 till 4, on Times Radio. Catch you next time.